Welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lemberg from Altus Performance. And this week, our guest is a member of Team Altus. We've got Daniel Berger. Uh, Daniel, as you probably know, is a two-time PGA Tour winner, former Rookie of the Year, and represented the U.S. in the winning President's Cup team in 2017. And as I mentioned, Cameron is on the team that supports Daniel. So he's got a unique insight uh, behind the scenes and was able to pull on some threads in this conversation that we had with Daniel that should be really helpful to all listeners trying to figure out new ways to get better. And part of that, we always try to unpack that origin story for the athletes that we speak to. And in this conversation, I was especially curious about Daniel's as his dad was a world-class athlete and then went on to be a coach himself. So it's really interesting to hear Daniel describe how that contributed to his development early on. And then Daniel's really open and generous with sharing some some great insights into his competitive mindset and the kind of self-talk during certain situations that he encounters in tournament play. So lots of good insights in this one. I hope that everyone is staying safe and managing to find some positives out of what has been a really difficult situation for a lot of people. Hopefully this conversation provides an opportunity to learn something new from one of the best golfers in the world. So please enjoy episode 62 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Daniel Berger. The Total Golf Trainer line of products are designed to provide instant feedback for golfers of all skill levels to help solve a wide variety of swing issues. And we haven't really seen an issue that it can't solve from path issues to improving club face control and even body mechanics. Pretty much any issue that you have, the Total Golf Trainer can help. The 3.0 kit is the first multi-tool training aid that is completely custom to your golf swing with the easy-to-use adjustable training rods that can be attached to your club or your body, and you can increase or decrease the difficulty level so anyone from juniors to beginners to pros will all benefit. We've enjoyed getting creative to find all the different ways that we can use the Total Golf Trainer, and they've got some great videos on their website that show it in use. So to learn more and watch those videos on how to improve your game, with the Total Golf Trainer, visit TotalGolfTrainer.com or find them on social media at Total Golf Trainer. But now, on to our episode. We're going to start with something really, really important. And it's something that I've always been curious about because your Instagram, I think Twitter handles are DB Straight Vibin. And I really have wondered for a long time, I need to know what straight vibin means because I feel like it's kind of like a, a guiding life principle or philosophy. And if I wanted to be CL straight vibing one day, I need to know what I need to do in order to do that. Yeah, I mean, straight vibing is more like I look at it as like stress free. Like when you're when you're vibing, you're just chilling, you're hanging out, you got no worries, and uh, I feel like that's kind of how I've tried to live my life. Pretty stress free. Obviously, as a professional golfer, we don't see that very often. But uh, yeah, it's just something that you know me and my buddies have been have been saying for a long time, and it just worked. And what does that stress-free off week look like for you? Well, currently with the uh, status of our world conditions right now, it's a lot of going on the boat and a lot of hanging out at the pool and just kind of relaxing. It's, it's, it's a weird time. A lot of golf courses are closed. A lot of gyms are closed. So things that I do typically in a week off, I don't have the opportunity to do. So mostly just hanging out on the water. And how much are you able to, let's say bleed over that attitude, that life philosophy, uh, to the golf course and how much does it show up in your, I'll call it your best performing self. Like do people see this in the golf course necessarily? I think I definitely see it. I know in my historical past, the best golf I've ever played in my life 
is when I didn't care about results or performance or what I shot. I didn't even know how many under or over par I was throughout a round. You just kind of sign the scorecard and you go, oh, that was a 66. I didn't feel like I played that good. Or, oh, that was a 68. I feel like I played well. But they're so intertwined with how much you care versus how you actually play. And so my biggest thing probably since I've been 14 years old has always been prepare the way you can prepare and then just go out there and have fun. And I know it's a hard thing to do, especially with so much on the line and so much money out there, but that's really what gets the best performance out of me. And you lead into the next question, which is a typical starting place. You know, the goal of the podcast is to have conversations with amazing people, people that uh, do the difficult things, whether they be athletes, entrepreneurs, or artists to, um, to get good, to get elite world-class, which is what you are. And the common starting place that we typically uh, begin these conversations at is an origin story. So, can you give us an idea as elaborate as you want to be in terms of your start in golf and then lay it on top of that, your background or your experience, given that your dad was a world-class uh, class tennis player and world-class coach himself? What's interesting is I, I didn't have the passion for golf at such a young age that a lot of these other guys that you see coming out today have. I started playing all different kinds of sports. I played baseball. I played soccer. I played basketball. I played tennis. I never really got into golf till I was probably about 13 years old. My sister was taking lessons at the local club. And when she couldn't uh, take a lesson, I'd fill in. And, you know, I, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't something that I was like, this is what I really wanted to do. And then one summer I did a summer camp uh, at our local club and I just, I had the greatest time ever. It was like one of those eye-opening experiences where I was like, take me back. I want to do this again tomorrow. <laughs> and from that moment on, I just knew that golf was what I wanted to do. And I've always, you know, Growing up in a competitive family with a dad who played professional tennis, I've just always had the urge inside of me to do something in sports. I didn't know if that was going to be necessarily me being a professional athlete or some kind of agent or something, but I wanted to be involved in sports. And when I did that summer golf camp, I said, this is what I want to do. I'm going to dedicate myself every day from here on out to eventually play on the PGA Tour. And, you know, a little bit of luck, whatever you want to call it, a lot of hard work, but, you know, I ended up making that dream come true. Hey, you mentioned your dad's background as an athlete, but he's also got an extensive background as a coach and, and running, you know, the men's team for uh, United States tennis. And I'm curious, as you were playing a bunch of different other sports, what are the kind of high performance traits that you picked up from dad that you feel like have been most useful for it? So not necessarily sports specific, but things like, you know, competitiveness and discipline or, or any other. And that hard work you mentioned. Yeah, right. I think from the earliest age that I can remember, it was always about the amount of work that you put in. I would ask him, how many hours a day did you practice? And he said, I practiced six hours a day. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to practice eight hours a day. And he enabled me to do whatever I felt I needed to do to be the best that I could be. So if I said, dad, I need you to take me to the golf course at 630 in the morning before I go to school, he said, all right, I'll drop you off. I'll pick you up. We'll take you to school. I'll drop you back off after uh, school's over. So there was really no bounds to what he would allow me to do in terms of golf. So he really opened up every door and every resource available to me. And without being the type of person that would force you into it, I said, if I said I didn't want to play golf anymore. I said, okay, that's fine. You just need to get straight A's in school. And I said, I'll play golf now. So <laughs> it was just kind of one of those things where whatever I was going to do, I was going to, I was going to do it at the highest level. So I would say the one thing that I remember from when I was 13 years old, he used to tell me this 10,000 hours thing. He said, 
in order to be a professional, you need to dedicate 10,000 hours of your life to it. So, or 10 years. So I really took that to heart and everything I ever did in terms of golf was always trying to get to that 10,000 hour goal. We want to continue to unpack that support provided by dad, but we're also as coaches, when we're trying to kind of dissect this and figure out what made you really, really good. We also look at the proximal role models, the other people, the peers that you had around you. And I read somewhere that you had an arrangement at the die preserve where in exchange for some labor, like picking up the range and cleaning cards, you were able to get a lot of playing and practice privileges where you could dedicate towards that pursuit of 10,000 hours. And I, I think that put you in close proximity to some PGA tour players. Can you speak to how integrating yourself into a tribe of players that had already achieved what you're looking to accomplish helped you develop? Yeah. When I was 15 years old, we moved from Key Biscayne down in Miami to Jupiter. And my dad was looking for someone for me to start working with up in Jupiter. So he gave a call to his buddy, Yvonne Lendl, who lives in Barrow Beach. And Lendl set us up with uh, a guy named Matt Doyle, who was uh, working at the Dive Preserve. And I took some lessons from him and everything was great. And, and Matt took it on himself to see if I wanted to work there in exchange for practice privileges. And obviously, to me, that was amazing. The Dive Preserve, prestigious, private, amazing club, lots of pros playing there. So I said, absolutely. So they set me up and every single day after class, I would go to the golf course, pick the range, caddy, whatever they needed me to do. And then once I got that done, I had free reign of the golf course. I mean, I could practice, I could play, I could do whatever I want. And I spent so much time there that the pros that were there, Will McKenzie, Steve Marino, uh, Jesper Parnovic, Henrik Bjornstad, Richard Johnson, all these pros that were playing out there kind of got to know me a little bit. And I mean, I was pretty cocky at the time. I wasn't afraid to speak my mind even to, you know, PGA Tour players. And so I think they took a liking to that and, and they saw probably a little bit of, of themselves in me and especially Steve Marino, who really took a liking to me. And we played a lot of golf when I was younger. We gambled. I mean, we gambled for, for amounts of money that I never dreamed of having. And uh, sometimes I won, sometimes I lost, you know, if I didn't have the money to pay, he like one time he took my iPod as collateral. Like it was just <laughs> it was one of those things where they really treated me like family there. And I think through being around professional athletes at that level, you kind of pick up on the small little things that they do, that the way that they practice, the way that they warm up. And I just think being immersed in that, uh, in that group of people really grew me to a level early on that other guys weren't able to, to achieve because you get to college golf and you've hung out with all these professional golfers and you play golf with them and you look at these guys and you go, they're not that good. I just played with Steve Marino. He just, he was leading the British open two weeks ago. Like these guys are not that good. And so I feel like it just kind of, my confidence went up playing with guys like this, knowing that if I could compete with them, I can compete with anybody. Before you got to college, you just mentioned college, but before you got to college, you were uh, the high school class of 2011, the fable class where so many great players came out of that. What's your recollection of competing with the guys in your class in AJGA events? Well, they were way better than me. That's oh, they were not. <laughs> they were way better than me. I remember Jordan and Justin and Patrick Rogers and Emiliano Grillo and a few others that I'm probably missing right now. But those guys were at the peak of junior golf, amateur golf. I feel like I kind of came on the scene a little bit later, more toward my sophomore year of college when I really started to figure things out and get way better at golf than I was early on. But I just remember how 
friendly and competitive everyone was like there was a different vibe uh with those guys it was friendly but everyone wanted to beat each other and it kind of has carried on to the pga tour we're all friends we all know each other but every single day we get up trying to do the things we can do to beat these guys in golf and it's a cool relationship to have i don't know many other sports where you have guys growing up from the time they were you know 12 13 years old to being able to play against each other at the highest level you were a late starter but you rose very quickly and you rose to the level where you had colleges that were recruiting you and we have a lot of listeners that are really good junior players nearing the time where they'll be making the same decision that you made about where to play in college what were the determining factors that um, caused you to decide i'm going to fsu i think the biggest thing for me was the coach you have to really bond with the coach and you have to find a place that fits your lifestyle the people that you want to be around, the community that you want to be around. But more so than that, you got to figure out where can I go where I'm going to get better. If you're going to go to an Oklahoma State or an Alabama or a Georgia and you're maybe not going to play the first couple of years, I'm not necessarily sure that's beneficial for you developing as a player. So even if that means going to somewhere that's a little bit lower on the totem pole in terms of collegiate ranked college golf teams, you want to go somewhere where you can build up your experience and play a bunch of golf. And that's kind of what I thought. I wanted to go somewhere where I knew I could just jump right in and I could start playing on the team. And I mean, Florida State was still a fantastic school. They were number three in the country when I committed. But uh, I, I just knew that I would have an opportunity to play there. And that was the biggest deciding factor for me. Hey, and you did have a couple really successful years there uh, before leaving early and deciding to turn pro. And so I'm curious as to what were the indicators that you were looking at that helped you make that leap and decide, you know, I've got the confidence. I feel like it's time for me to go to the next level. Well, when I first got to college, my freshman year, I was one of the most immature kids you've ever met in your entire life. I mean, I could barely get to practice on time. I mean, coach just, he really beat me down, but I felt like he did it in a way that allowed me to figure stuff out on my own and to kind of build a confidence in myself and learn things about myself that I maybe didn't know earlier on. But I think the difference between my freshman year and sophomore year, where my sophomore year, I was one of the top five players in college golf was the confidence that I got from incrementally getting better and knowing that if I continue to do these things, that I'm going to be one of the best amateurs in the world. And it wasn't necessarily about being the best amateur today. It was about, I have a plan that if I continue to do these things, I'm going to get better over time. And that's kind of how I framed it for me. And my sophomore year, I was pretty successful. I won a couple times. I think I won the, there was a, a, an amateur golf tournament that I won by 13. And I was just starting to really figure things out. And, you know, being away from my coach, Jeff, um, at the time and not being able to see him as often and, and just doing some things that I, I felt like I needed to do in the gym that we weren't necessarily doing at FSU. I thought I could get a lot better being at home. And that's what kind of made that decision easier for me. I mean, looking back at it now, it was a bit naive to think I was just going to turn pro, go to the web.com and one year later be on the PGA Tour. But things, I guess, just worked out. You mentioned something in inside of that answer about doing the things that you were needing to do to get better. And that's a common kind of conversation subject that we have with uh, aspiring players, be it professional or collegiate or junior golfers trying to get to colleges. What are those specific things? Can you give us a window back into that time, the time you spent hitting balls, the time you spent practicing specific skills versus the time that you feel like you got better just merely by competing or playing the game of golf? Well, I think a lot of the 
things that I did at FSU were a lot more structured and formatted than I had been in my earlier years before I got to college. So having a little bit more structure, we're going to work on short game, we're going to work on putting, we're going to work on distance control. Those things, I got way better, way quicker when I started to do those things. And I just figured out what worked for me. All right, well, I need to do an hour and a half of distance control. And then I need to do an hour of putting and an hour of chipping and specific training. And by doing those things, you could see the the level of my golf game improving over time. And it was an easy thing for me to see that if I, if I focus really hard on these things, I'm going to improve a lot and a lot quicker. And that's kind of what I decided to do. One of the more common questions that we get from Altus clients and listeners is how do I spin it like a tour player? Well, the first step is to treat your equipment like a tour player, and that means that you've got the right golf ball and you've got fresh grooves. Visit Vokey.com to see the spin research that Bob Vokey and his team have conducted to better understand how grooves wear over time. After 75 to 100 rounds of golf, you owe it to yourself to test your grooves to make sure that they're still getting maximum spin from your wedges. Find a fitter at Vokey.com for a spin test soon. Hey, we just had a conversation with Webb Simpson and he described his first couple years on tour as a real learning experience where he had to get acclimated to just the small things about life on tour and traveling and new golf courses. And then I contrast that to your first year where you had six top tens, two runner ups, were the only rookie to make it to the tour championship. And you finished that first year 11th on the FedEx Cup standings. So usually that process of adjusting takes a little bit longer. What were the keys to acclimating to that next level of play so quickly and so successfully? Well, I think first off playing a year on the web.com tour was, it's hard to even put into words without that. I would have never been able to have such a successful first year on tour because I'd never traveled outside the country by myself. I had never been in hotel rooms, you know, for weeks on end by myself. And having done that for a whole year, really kind of let me feel comfortable being by myself and independent and uh, making decisions on your own that typically you'd have five other people helping you make. And when you're on the PGA tour, things go by really quickly. You have to make decisions on the fly. You have to, you know, think really quickly. And I think uh, just having spent that time on the web really made a big difference for me. Let's go to a question that is really a question that's deep inside uh, the psychological space, the headspace of uh, contending in tournaments, which you did so frequently in your rookie year and you've done frequently throughout your entire career. For example, in your rookie, you started the final round at 109 back and chased down the leaders to eventually force a playoff. And then the next year, you held a three-shot lead at FedEx and had to hold off DJ Kepka and Mickelson. What's the mentality like when you're leading uh, contrasted versus the psychological space that when you're you're, you're chasing? Well, I've been lucky enough to win both times having been behind and been in front. And I think the biggest thing is staying in the present. You have to be so focused and controlled with your emotions on what you're what you're doing right now. If you start thinking about four holes from now, six holes from now, eight holes from now, it's such a challenge to, to hit the shot you want to hit right now. So I think the most important thing that allowed me to be successful in all those different uh, experiences was just trying to stay as as present as possible and, and not worry about results. Just, just focus on doing the things that I can do now. And, and I think the fact that I had such low expectations where, you know what, if, if I finished fifth, whatever, but I knew that I gave it my all, I knew I prepared my best. I knew I competed harder than anyone 
competed out there. And those are the only things you can control. And, and if you take your mind off results and you focus on the things that you can control, I think the performance ends up just coming itself. Right. And maybe another way to express that, and you, you can maybe tell the story of simplifying golf down to its true essence, which is just the shot at hand. Uh, you told me a story how uh, for a, a good number of years, uh, Grant, your caddy, your original caddy, would just give you a number and say, this is the club, and you would go ahead and hit it. Can you ex- express how uh, that helped you simplify things? When I first came on tour, I hired a very experienced caddy, a caddy that had been on tour for 25 years. He'd won multiple times. Uh, he'd worked with many top players. And I think he was able to know my game so well that he gave me the confidence that if he said something, I truly believed it. And I didn't question it. I didn't doubt it. I just went with it. And it gives you a, a sense of freeness when you and your teammate, your caddy, are picturing something and and it comes off the way you want it to. But I think the biggest thing was, like you were saying, there would be times where we would train on on a, on a Wednesday and we would dial in our numbers so perfectly that if we had 150, he wouldn't even tell me it was 150. He would just say, it's a nine iron. And I would hit a nine iron and it would be pin high or whatever, right around the flag stick. And it just kind of carried over like that. And I think that's something that changes as you mature and as you get better and as you figure out your own self. And, uh, you know, now I'm a little bit uh, different in that aspect, but I still have that relationship with our caddy where if when he says something and we have that trust factor, I believe it and I go with it. And that's such a big difference when you have someone like that. And they're not easy to come by. You mentioned they're like prepping for an event and the activities you would go through on maybe a Wednesday to be ready. And I read something that described your your master's prep your first year there as being a little bit different than what I normally envision. Uh, that you maybe weren't as you hadn't weren't as familiar with the golf course as most guys. What do you do differently on Monday through Wednesday that tips the scales in your favor so that you're as prepared as you can to win? Because I feel like this is a different answer than what I'm accustomed to hearing from you. Yeah, I mean, like just to put some background to that first Masters, I had never played the golf course before. I'd never been out to Augusta. I mean, I'd only played it on on video games before, but I had performed well in the weeks before, and I, and I was very confident in my game. So rather than you know burning a bunch of energy, spending a bunch of time on the golf course, looking at every single break that a lot of these guys tend to do out there, I just did what I could control. I worked on my speed. I worked on my distance control. I had good. Uh, you know, good control of my ball. And I spent nine holes chipping and putting and that was it. And I walked the back nine once and, and I didn't want to see where I didn't want to hit it. I, I just wanted to get a picture of where the holes went, you know, some breaks on the greens, but I feel like it really freed me up because I'd step up on a tee and I didn't know where the trouble was. I just knew that this is where I wanted to hit it. And, and sometimes that's challenging when you play a golf course five or six times, you know, this is my sixth year on tour you play a golf course and you you've hit it everywhere. So you know where all the bad stuff is and how do you get yourself to free up to, to not think about that. And that was something that really worked for me well that first year at Augusta. And I think kind of going back to that, which I have, it's kind of helped me uh, kind of reestablish myself right now. Yeah. So you spoke to experience can be both positive and negative, particularly when you're carrying forward with you, the knowledge that you have found some difficult places on the course what strategies have you found useful to silence that, block it out completely, or let it pass through and return yourself to a presence that allows you to almost ignore it? Well, I think breathing is one of the most important things in golf. It was something that 
And my first lesson I ever had with Jeff Leishman, we, I was 14 years old and we're on the putting green and we're talking about breathing. And I'm thinking to myself, what is this guy doing right now? Like, I want to go hit driver. And we're talking about how to breathe properly. So it's interesting that the first thing I go to is breathing, you know, 12 years later, which is something that, you know, I learned so, so many years ago, but I think really being in control of your breath, really focusing on your pre-shot routine. I think having a pre-shot routine, I've had the same pre-shot routine for 10 years. It's something that puts you in a sense of calmness and a sense of relaxation. And then you just go and do your thing and you don't think about all the other factors that could influence your golf shot. Yeah. It's an interesting response. I would categorize your response as describing things that are very, very useful, high value, but most people underrate them. Would you agree? A hundred percent. I mean, you're going to talk to a bunch of top players who one of the things they're going to do is focus on breathing, but you go and look at the typical amateur and they're never going to think about breathing under, you know, intense situations. Yeah. Are there other things that come to mind that are very useful, high value actions, uh, strategies, but yet you see either professionals or amateurs underrating them? I think for me, the biggest thing has always been pre-shot routine, but I think the more that I feel confident in my ability in the preparation stages allows me to feel confident when I get out there. So if I prepare the proper way, then everything else kind of takes care of itself. Even if the performance is not necessarily the way I want it to go. Golf is one of those things where you don't, you don't always get the best performance, even if you do the right things. So, you know, it's kind of a way for me to get all that stuff out of there and and not focus so much on results. So you're playing really good golf right now and we're forced to take a break, but what can you do in terms of preparation or what are you planning on doing? What's the game plan, the roadmap out of this to ensure that you have just as much momentum, if not more, when we're able to get back and play? I think the one of the most important things is taking care of my body, making sure I'm healthy, making sure I'm fit when that time does come. But uh, to be honest, it's kind of nice to have a little bit of a time period where Um, I'm not focused on, you know, getting back tomorrow or the next day, being able to kind of relax and just kind of regroup. But, you know, I've had some injuries over the last couple of years. So making sure that my body is healthy and ready to go is is one of the most important things. And uh, just kind of maintaining the momentum that I've had doing the small things, whether it's, you know, 50 or 60 chip shots in my backyard to my pool, just to kind of maintain that motion that I've been working on. But um, it's it's a challenging time. I mean, golf courses are closed, gyms are closed. There's not very much things we can do at this point other than kind of wait it out and see what happens. You mentioned the a little bit of time that you had off due to injury, and I'm curious if there's anything that stands out as the lessons learned going through that adversity and how you reacted to challenge that then serves you well. And maybe you're more prepared to deal with now a forced break that's not from an injury, but from something else. You know, when I first got hurt, it was amazing for the first month because I couldn't play golf. And I was thinking, this is the best thing ever. I can go on the boat. I can hang out. I don't have any responsibilities. Yeah. And then two months went by and I go, man, I miss golf. Like I never really thought I loved golf. I thought I was just good at it. And this was my job. And then the more time that went by, I thought, wow, this is this is sad that I can't play right now. So. I really had a perspective change when that happened. And I knew from that point on that I was going to do everything I could to ensure that I was going to be as healthy as possible so that I can continue to do this game that I, that I love. And uh, it's been one of those times where I've really had to change, you know, 
my diet, things that I do off the golf course, training, the amount of balls that I hit, playing more golf, just changing certain things that I did in the past that maybe lent to a more injury-prone Daniel. You play regularly, whether it's uh, down in uh, Jupiter with the best players in the world or whether it's on tour week to week with the best players in the world, you are the 1% of the 1%. What characteristics do you feel distinguish the very 1% of the 1%? Obviously, competitiveness for me is is something that's way up there. I think every time I play golf, there's something on the line. I don't think I can, I can't get my mind to focus if there's not some type of positive or negative, some type of outcome on the line. I have to be playing for something. And I don't know if that's just the way I grew up or, or whatever factors may have been involved in that, but I always have to be playing for something. And I think when you look at the best players in the world, they always want to compete no matter what it is. And I think that's the difference between some of the guys that are the, at the highest level versus some of the guys that are trying to make it. Every time I step out on the golf course, I want to compete, even if it's with myself or with others for money, whatever it is. One of the answers that we anticipate there is competitiveness, but also we hear a lot is just the discipline. And I think probably going back to lessons that were given to you from dad and his experience in sport. But I'm curious, like, what does that hard work look like for you? Because I know a lot of listeners are, are looking to try to replicate what you've accomplished. And a lot of the times, they're, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into it, but they're looking for these hard and fast rules of, all right, what did Daniel do when he's working hard and he has this great discipline? What exactly does it look like? So I, I guess another way to say that is, even during time like this, like specifically, what does the time on task look like? Whether that's when you're on the golf course, you're working in the gym, the mix of practice time on the range and then time out on the golf course. Yeah. I think when you talk about hard work, the thing that comes to my mind is sacrifice. Are you willing to sacrifice more than other people are willing to? And when I was younger, I sacrificed being with friends. I sacrificed going to parties. I sacrificed doing fun things because I knew that I had a long-term goal and I was willing to put things aside that sounded fun at the time that I knew if I sacrificed those, they would pay off in the end. And, and I think that's something that some people aren't willing to do. They're not willing to make those tough decisions that other people are. And I think that's something that separates some of the best players in the world. You've answered this question, I believe, already a couple of times in this conversation, but I want to ask the question specifically just to kind of ring the bell again for the listeners uh, out there that are trying to do the difficult things. Where does confidence come from? That's a great question. I mean, it comes from so many different places. It comes from your coach. It comes from your family. It comes from your caddy. It comes from working hard and, and doing things that you need to do to prepare. But overall, I think confidence comes from yourself. When you believe in yourself that you've done everything you can do, then it kind of takes the stress off of everything else. And, and that's something that I've always worked hard on is doing, controlling the things that I could control. And, and that's what gave me confidence. And, and the results would come even if it was, you know, long-term lag effect. It, it, eventually they would come if I did the things that I could control. Right. There's certainly an elasticity, a lag effect, as you described, doing the right things. And then at what point will they uh, some or amount to the success or expectations of uh, success. But invariably, we go to a place where the voice in our head says something different. And what do you do when the voice in your head says something different other than, hey, be confident, be be uh, Daniel Berger, uh, be DB straight vibing? Well, I write things down. I think the most important for me is writing things down. I, I've always done that. I've done that since I was 14 or 15 years old. And, you know, I make lists, I write down my thoughts, 
and I read them back to me. And I have, I have notes going back 10 years when I first took my first golf lesson when I was 13 years old at the Jim McLean School with Bobby Cole. I mean, and it just kind of, it puts something in your mind that is much stronger than just saying it. And if I ever have hardships, I go back down to, you know, previous times and I look at things that I did back then. And that's what kind of makes a difference for me. Hey, one of your answers on the source of confidence kind of perked my ears up a little bit is you said that confidence can come from a coach. And so just in the interest of, of scratching my own itch, what are some examples or ways that you can use an external source like a coach that can kind of infuse you with some of that confidence? Well, I think that, you know, having spent a lot of time on driving ranges on the PGA tour, you see guys that are coaches that tend to be the very chatty ones. And I think sometimes there's not necessarily a need for that, for that extra chatter. If you're doing something well, a coach can be that guy that just says, everything's great. You're doing well. You don't need to change anything. And, and that gives me confidence rather than having someone sit there and go, Oh, well, you know, you need a little bit more rotation here, this or that. I mean, someone to just be your kind of your grounding force and, and has a reference point for what you need to do and where you need to be. And, and that person can say those things. And that really is what allows you to feel good. Yeah. Sometimes it's less, not more. Sometimes it's subtraction rather than addition. I couldn't agree with you more. That's some more fantastic sentiment for our listeners. I mean, we've got some quick hit questions that don't necessarily require quick responses. You can be as short and brief one word, or you can elaborate as much as you want. But the first one I want to throw your way is if you had to pick one shot that you're most proud of that defines you as a player that uh, came about in a match at home or under the most extreme pressure on the PGA tour, which particular shot would that be and why? I would say I have probably a couple of those, but the first thought that I had was my sophomore year in college, we were playing our home college tournament and I had about a seven footer to win the golf tournament. And I hadn't won very many college golf tournaments, but this one just meant more to me. It was my call. It was my home tournament. I got our, you know, local fans around, my parents are around. And I just remember getting up there and draining that seven footer and just feeling so good about myself and knowing that I could do it when it really mattered. And that was one of those moments that really, I think, changed me and affected me. And, and then the second time that I can remember was sitting there on the 18th hole at the FedEx St. Jude Classic, which is a dogleg left. And if anyone knows me, I don't hit draws. Everything is a cut. So it's a hard dog leg left and we're on the last hole and I've got a two shot lead and I'm sitting there on the tee box and I am shitting myself. Like, <laughs> how am I going to get this ball in the fairway? And I just stuck to my guns and I played an aggressive shot and I hit it right down the middle. And, and that was one of those moments again, where you believe in yourself so much and then the shot comes out and it's such a positive impact on, on yourself and you feel so good about yourself and you know that if that situation ever comes again, you can deliver. And that's something that stays with me forever. It doesn't matter how many bad shots I hit out for the rest of my life. When I get there and I know that I need to hit a, a good shot, I go back to that memory bank and I know I have it in my system. Yeah. Beautiful advice. You also touched on a subject uh, that I want to pull a thread on, which is not necessarily a quick hit question I had in mind, but it is a question nonetheless that great golf comes in many varieties. Um, you look at players and you find players work it both ways. They hit it high, they hit it low, but you're a player that predominantly plays one shape. What strength, what advantage do you feel like that gives you, particularly off the tee when you're primarily playing one shape, which is a fade? 
Well, I think it takes one side of the golf course out of play. So I know I can aim this as far left as I want and it's going to cut back. So it's really a, a matter of how much shape do I want to play on it. And I think from a young age, I was always taught a lot of shape, you know, different shapes, but more so not being so confined with straight. And I think that that ability is something that's important because if I get to a hole that has a big dog leg or, you know, water down the left, I'm okay with aiming this ball in the water. Like I'm going to set this thing up in the water and I know it's going to fade. And that's something through years and years of practice that I've uh, mastered, but it really gives you the one side of the golf course out of play, which I think is important. I don't have left and right misses. I know if this is going to miss anywhere, it's going to miss to the right. And it's predictable. And the results speak for itself. You're perennially a, a great driver and a great striker of the ball, tee to green. And before I became part of your team, before you invited me into your team, I was always curious as an observer, the systematic approach you take to striking balls. Can you describe for the listener uh, what you do, meaning the rope on the ground, the cleaning of the club, et cetera, et cetera, and describe for the listener what that provides you? Yeah. Well, when I was younger, we started working with a long rope, probably like a 12, 10, 12 foot rope. And that allowed me in the most simple way to determine was I starting this ball online, not technical at all, not worrying about club position or anything like that. Just a simple checkup. Is this ball starting where I want it to start? And it gives you a really good visual when you see the ball because the rope is so long, it gives you a great idea if, if you did what you wanted to do. And it never really uh, handcuffed me. It really just allowed me to hit shapes that I wanted to hit. And sometimes that would be hitting draws when, you know, I had too much cut just to kind of back down the cut. But it really allowed me to be able to visualize the shot that I was hitting. And that's something that's so important in golf is you have to be able to see your shots. What percentage of your practice time right now is dedicated towards specific technical work where you're working on mechanics and maintaining good mechanics with that great ball striking that you have and what percentage of that time is just hitting shot shapes as you described i would say that the mechanics part is important it's more of a checkup for me if something is not going the way i want it to or i'm not seeing the right contact or i'm not seeing the right shape then i go back to that as kind of a reference point but a lot of it for me is the distance control i think when your distance control is on, you're going to play well, because even if you hit it 25 feet to the left, pin high 25 feet is going to be on the green most of the time. And uh, I think that's something that's really important. But the mechanics is more of a checkup, probably a smaller percentage than the overall maintenance of ball striking for me. Back to our quick hits. What's the toughest round of golf you ever played? Probably the Players' Championship three years ago when they kind of lost the greens a little bit and they, uh, they mowed them, I think, a little bit too much, and they rolled them a little bit too much, and then they had this huge heat wave come in. And the first couple of days, the greens were probably rolling like 11, and then out of nowhere, they started rolling 15. And uh, I don't know if you remember, Sergio, like five or six putted on one of those greens. And I think I shot two or three under and moved up like 30 places. I ended up finishing like fifth or sixth that week. But firm greens are always challenging, but firm greens at the Players' Championship is just, is just brutal. I know you've got a lot of really good players there in Jupiter that you you've you can find any kind of game that you want uh, when you're at home. When you're out on the road and, and you're at a tournament, who are who is your favorite? I don't know. You could go foursome or just playing partner. If you're going to go play a practice round and you want to find a good game, who's the first guy or group of guys that you're looking to compete with? 
I mean, I'm not going to play with anybody. My thing is slow play. Like, I can't play a slow round in a practice round. Like, Cameron can attest to that. I don't care who it is, but I will hit into you if you're playing slow. <laughs> get in, so, get out, and get on with it, right? Yeah, hit in. Just get going. Like, I mean, you see some guys that are hitting 15, 20 pitch shots around the green. I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> you're not even going to hit it there anyway, so why do you need to hit that shot? So. I don't care who I play with as long as it's fast golf. Right. You get done with a round or a tournament and you scan the leaderboard. Who do you take great pleasure, if anyone, in beating? Jordan Spieth, Justin yeah, Thomas. There you go. <laughs> who else do you work with, Cameron? I mean, uh, <laughs> anybody that Cameron works with, I want to beat. No, but you know what? It, it's, it's so hard to look at a leaderboard and go, I want to beat this guy because it is such an individual sport. You really just need to focus on yourself. But, you know, there's certain guys that I want to say that I always, I, I tend to get a little happier than than others when I beat. I hear you. There's the fun answers, which is naming players that you have a good relationship with. And then there's the right answer, which is, you know, it's an individual game as you express. And I'm playing against the golf course and largely I'm playing against me. And you've described many strategies as you're playing against that internal voice, that internal person who's pulling as, or who's pushing as you're pulling, pulling forward and, and, and trying to yeah, get the best out of yourself. Do you watch the scoreboard at any point in time or does it depend on your position in the tournament? I think it's all depending on my position in the tournament. I think if I'm right around the lead coming down the back nine, I want to know where I'm at. I want to know what I need to do coming in. I try not to take too much notice to, you know, I got a par five or a par four coming up, but more so I'm one back with three to go. I need to make two birdies. You know, that's something that's important. That's going to change your game plan to win a golf tournament, which is sometimes you need to do that. But overall, I would say I'm definitely not focused on the leaderboard the first two or three days because so much can happen in, in those first couple rounds. And I mean, sometimes you got a guy that's lying 40th place that has a chance to win the golf tournament on Sunday. Uh, so it, it doesn't necessarily matter as much until late in, in the tournament. I'm going to finish with one of our my favorite questions to ask players, just because we get a wide range of responses. What are your thoughts on swing thoughts? Percentage of rounds where you've played without them, are you void of all swing thoughts, or are there typically one or two feels that you're trying to uh, execute when you're on the course? I would say that I don't know if it's necessarily a swing thought. I would say the first four years I played on tour, I just got up there and hit the ball and found it and hit it again, and and then uh, – <laughs> you know, whatever happened, happened. I would say the last couple of years I've, I've made a few small changes and sometimes it's something in setup. Sometimes it's something very, very simple, but it's never a position in the golf swing that I want to have a club in or something like that. That's just too complicated. And then there's too much stuff going on and it's too quick to be thinking about that. So, uh, usually it's something very small, very simple, something that I've grooved over hours and hours of practice, not something that I just show up on a you know, Thursday morning before the tea time and go, I want to do that. You know, I, w I want to follow up on that. So we know that it's not typically something that's like an internal at place of attention. Is it more external? Or are you more focused on in your case, that left to right curve or target attention when you're over the ball? Yeah. Usually it's more about shot shape, more about trajectory. If I'm hitting it a little bit wayward, I might tend to, you know, go to a shot that's more of a squeeze, more something lower controlled, more flighted. But yeah, it's typically not very uh, technical. That's just kind of how I've always been. If you look at my swing, it's very different, I guess you would call it. But, you know, I know it works and I know under pressure the shots come out. And that's the only thing that matters. Can you hit the shot that you want to hit when you need to hit it? And, and I know I can. That's a beautiful place to close at that confident statement. Bug, I... Every moment I get to spend with you, I, I, I love um, you bring energy every time we're together. And I think 
Uh, the same would be said if anyone was describing an interaction with you. Appreciate the time, appreciate the advice, the insight, the picture inside world of elite golf and your specific world. Thanks for the time. All right, guys. Thank you. See ya. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. We're also pretty active on Instagram, so follow at Altus Performance, and you can also follow on Twitter at Team Altus. If you haven't done so, please hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a review, share it with others, and be sure to stay tuned to future episodes of Earn Your Edge. Thanks for listening.